invite you to turn in God's Word this morning to Genesis 25, page 19 in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 25. We'll be looking at Romans 9 a bit later, but we want to start in Genesis 25. God was good to Abraham, it says in, uh, throughout these chapters in calling of Abraham and particularly in chapter 24 that he was blessed in everything, blessed in everything. And after Sarah died, Abraham married again and was blessed with more children, with Keturah. And in chapter 25, we read about the death of Abraham. The genealogies that precede this account of his death and that follow this account of his death are of his natural sons, and we learn that they are not the focus of the biblical story. It is Isaac and his offspring who receive the author's attention. So just by way of background, the verses 7 through 11 where we hear of Abraham's death, and then we'll look at the verses 19 to 34. Abraham's life was 175 years. Abraham then breathed his last, we read in verse 8, and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. His sons buried him in the cave that he had purchased, where Sarah had been buried in that land of promise. And after the death of Abraham, verse 11 tells us, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahairoi. And in this morning, the verses 19 to 34 as we continue reading in God's holy word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah's wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. For Edom sounds like the Hebrew for red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God. May add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it this morning. Dear people of God, what do you remember about the story of Jacob and Esau? Probably not the fact that their mother was childless for 20 years. 
She was barren for 20 years before children were born. Isaac was 40 when married, 60 when the boys were born. Significant amount of time, long enough for Isaac and Rebecca to understand that there would be no continuation, there would be no life, uh, no continuation of promise without God's blessing. Barrenness is seen throughout the lives of the patriarchs. We see it here, we saw it in Sarah, we'll see it in Rachel, we'll see it in Leah. The Bible shows us over and over that God's promises don't come about by human effort. Nothing comes about apart from God. He creates life and he also gives new life. Every person here owes their existence to God. Every person who's ever lived owes their existence to God. Every person who has ever experienced the new birth ought to praise God. For this too is a gift from him. It doesn't get passed on from parent to child. Well, we read a bit about Rebecca's pregnancy. It's a It's a rough pregnancy. The children are struggling, wrestling within her. The word here means to bruise. It's a very violent situation. And she's not aware that she's carrying twins. The biblical writer tells us that this is the case. But she has questions of, why is this happening to me? Verse 22. And the Lord, she goes to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord speaks to her and he says this. Two nations are in your womb, and they are at odds with each other, and the older will serve the younger. The younger would be the stronger. The older would serve the younger, and this according to God's word. This was not expected. It was expected that the older son would be the inheritor and the one who would receive the greatest blessing, the larger portion. But here, God says it will not be so in this case. It was the older son normally who received that birthright, who would carry on the line. But here, God teaches that he determines inheritance, that he determines blessing. In Genesis, we see that there are many interesting aspects of our origins and we hear about the beginning of the world. We hear about world, the worldwide flood. We hear about the call of Abraham. Then we have this account, or not immediately, but now we find ourselves at this account where the birth of Esau and Jacob is given to us. And we say, well, this isn't. Why is this important? I mean, we're talking about the world being created. We're talking about a worldwide flood taking place. We're talking about big events. This is a book of, of big events. Why is this recorded for us? Well, it's important for us, and we know this because of the significance the biblical writers give to it. And I want us to turn now to Romans chapter 9, where we see the New Testament commentary on the birth of Rebecca's children. Romans 9, Genesis gives us a description of the boys, tells it, telling us about them. Esau is the more vigorous, the firstborn, the expected choice for carrying on the messianic line. But God, God is above the, the, all of uh, the, the events, all of the happenings in the world, and he does not choose Esau. Why? I want you to look at verse 10, looking at verse 10, where uh, Paul is speaking, Romans 9, verse 10, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. It's an important lesson for us to be learned from this account of Jacob and Esau. It's an important part of biblical testimony and of the way God works. What's going on in the background as Paul's writing the book of Romans? Well, he'd just been talking uh, about God's faithfulness and his promise. He had been dealing with the problem of the unbelief of God's people, the general unbelief of the, Israel, of the Israelites. Early in Romans, he explained the gospel and concluded with that great affirmation that God, God's promises would not be frustrated that nothing in heaven or on earth could separate a believer from, from God's love, Romans chapter 8. But in the present situation, as Paul is, is writing, there's some confusion because Israel, by and large, had not believed in God's promised Messiah in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he had promised to save Israel. He, the question then comes up, had God's promise, his promise failed Was it possible to be the object of his sovereign choice and be lost after all? And Paul is just explaining that. He's pointing back to the scriptures and how God works. Paul's answer presents that glorious gospel of grace. Salvation was by grace for the nations. Explain that the promises were not made to those merely physically descended from Abraham. The promises were made to spiritual Israel, to those whom God had chosen, both Jews and Gentiles. And we have to ask ourselves, and what made the difference between the saved and the unsaved? That's what they were asking. Well, then if it's that, we thought it was, it was uh, of, of descent from Abraham. What, what makes the difference? Well, it's not works. Paul says it right there in verse 11, that his purpose and election might stand not because of works, but because of him who calls, God told Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. It's his sovereign electing grace, verses 15 and 16. Paul points back to God's word to Moses. For God says to, said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. No one is owed salvation. All are deserving of judgment. The Bible makes that very clear. Paul's been arguing that earlier in this epistle to the Romans. Salvation is grounded in the mercy of God alone. And Jacob and Esau are used by Paul to illustrate this truth because it's hard to imagine two boys more equal in nature, twins of the same promised line, both of Isaac and Rebekah. Yet God chose Jacob and did not choose Esau. Paul quotes God's word there in chapter 9 and verse 13. God's word through Malachi when he's speaking to the Israelites about The fact that there are those in Israel, some of whom are chosen, some who are not. And he said this, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Election is based upon God's good pleasure. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. He wants everyone to know this, so he points to the story of Esau and Jacob. He looks back. He says there's nothing, there's there's no two that are any closer than these two. And yet God displays his sovereign election here. 
He shows that it is based upon his sovereign election. Well, there's no doctrine in Scripture that I'm aware of that arouses more anger and opposition than this doctrine, but it's a biblical doctrine, and it is upheld by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he taught that salvation is by grace alone. And the Jews responded that, you don't understand, you don't have the right understanding, Jesus. It's about being descended from Abraham. And we are Abraham's descendants. We don't need any of, to, to hear anything else. All we have to know is to show, or, or to show is, our descent from Abraham. And Jesus replied that although they were descended physically from Abraham, they were not Abraham's true spiritual descendants. For he said, if you were Abraham's true spiritual descendants, you would not be trying to kill me. You would not be resisting me. You would see that I am the one whom God has sent in fulfillment of all prophecy. Well, Paul makes the same point here. He says, not all who are descended from Israel, from Jacob, belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Romans 9 and verses 6 and 7, same chapter, a few verses earlier. Paul makes clear that God chose Abraham apart from any personal merit in him. The electing love of God is not based upon birth or a person's character. The election of the sinner unto salvation is according to his good pleasure, to the praise of his glorious grace, which we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. All that we are, all that we will become, all that we have, all that we will ever attain, all is due to God's grace. And he is worthy of praise for that gift. God receives our praise in everything. Salvation is offered to all in Christ. God has provided a Savior whose death covers the worst sins and can redeem the worst sinner. This salvation by grace is set before us that no one might boast before the Lord. No one. It eliminates all pride and it is meant to lead us to love God more for his love of us in spite of ourselves. For no one is at the front of the line. All are equally in need of salvation at the foot of the cross. The truth that salvation is by grace gives us confidence that any can be saved. We can go forth confidently in evangelism knowing that God can use his word and by the power of his spirit convert anyone. No matter what their background, no matter what their history, we can't save anyone. No one can save themselves, but God is powerful to save anyone And he uses means, the preaching and teaching of the gospel, to create faith. And knowing this teaching then should lead us further to go to God in prayer for sustaining grace and to thank him daily for his grace and for his mercy in saving us. There's application in that doctrine, those applications. 
Well, this is not an unimportant passage, and I'm talking again of Genesis 25. Why, what, where else do we see that? Well, now in Hebrews chapter uh, 12, we see this passage being referred to again, this account of Esau and Jacob in Hebrews chapter 12. warns that those who despise God's grace are in danger of forever forfeiting the privilege of experiencing his blessing. So God elects, but he elects unto holiness. He elects unto obedience. He elects unto newness of life. He doesn't say, well, you're elect. Now just sit and do, do nothing. There's application further. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one fails, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. As a warning against failing to obtain God's grace. Interesting phrase, obtaining grace. How do you get something that's freely given? Well, What he's saying there, I believe, is that we are to make clear that no one fails to understand the grace of God, to understand how God shows his grace and calls people to come to him. Esau did not understand the grace of God. He did not understand the value of being in the covenant. He despised it. He thought it of little Significance. We'll look at that as we move forward. First, though, Jacob was right to desire the birthright, for it spoke of blessing, the Old Testament birthright. We're not going to look at all the background there, but the, the birthright was something of, of significance. It, it spoke of blessing. It spoke of God's uh, hand and his, his promises. And Jacob was right to want that blessing. He sought, one commentator says, he sought a good thing, as we read the rest of the story, Genesis 25. He sought a good thing in a wrong way. He took it from Esau, but he was commended for, he is to be commended for desiring God's blessing, even if we do not approve of how he went after it. Well, Esau shows poorly in this respect. Coming back to Genesis 25 now, he despised his birthright. He was an example of one who is in the covenant community, but who doesn't value the covenant blessings. He sold his birthright for something of much less value, for a bowl of stew, for a little something to eat, for a moment. Where was Esau's heart? Well, it was upon the moment. It was upon the things of earth. And what God, what does God say about Esau? It says he despised his birthright, verse 34 of Genesis 25. Here's where I want to start thinking about application for ourselves. We, we can think and act this way at times, despising God's covenant blessings. Thinking, well, I know. I, I remember where I was baptized. I remember when I made profession of faith. I thought about those things, and those are all sealed. That's a done deal. And now, but I'm now on to bigger things. There's things that are more important, things that, that are pressing. I'm in a time of life where I've got different, uh, you know, it'll all settle down eventually, but right now I'm just too busy for those things. We give ourselves to the pursuit of fleeting things, to the neglect of the pursuit of those things which have eternal value. We pursue trophies and personal glory and hobbies and leisure. And if these 
are more important than meaningful participation in the covenant community, we reveal a heart that despises the blessings of God. What he's given us, the value of being together, of being a part of the body of Christ, of giving our time and giving our effort. Someone says, I don't despise God. I come to church. I have my kids in Christian school. I'm doing good things. And these are all, I believe, in keeping with desire to obey God's commands, to raise our children right, to worship God. But what's first in your life? What's first? What gets your best? What do you prioritize? Do you strive to live for God in the covenant community of God? Would anyone ever accuse you? Would anyone ever determine that you are guilty of putting God first by looking at your life? Could they say, well, I know what that person values. I see what is first in his life or her life. Or does worship and church activity just fit in our calendars along with all the other activities that we have and sometimes fall below those other activities. Listen, Esau was a very desirable man in the sense of this. He was a go-getter. We would want him on our team. He, if you said it, Esau, go do this. Hey, I'm there. I'm, I'm, your, I'm your guy. I'm going to go do it. You need, a, you need food. I'm out there. I'm hunting. I'm going to take care of it. I'll track it down. He was a doer, self-made man. But you know what? He didn't value most what he should have valued most. And we see that in this episode, in this event. He didn't treasure God's grace. He's starving and he takes of this food of Jacob. And what does he do? Jacob gives him the food and what does he do? He eats, he drinks, he rises and he goes on his way. No thank you, no what a, what, a, what a provision that God has provided, what a, what a blessing. Just he eats, he drinks, he rises, he goes his way, and he despises, and that's it. And he despises his birthright, verse 34. He goes after it, he gets what he wants, he goes out and despises what he should treasure. His God was his stomach. Now, maybe I'm taking that passage a bit out of context in Philippians 3, but let me explain what I mean. Is when, 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 he's, when he's having a, a, a discussion with himself in his mind, he's saying, well, I know what, what's most important to me right now, and it's getting some stew. What, of what value is a birthright? Who cares? <laughs> right? He's exhausted. He demands stew from Jacob. Jacob, again, sees the opportunity to get the birthright. His method is something we will discuss another day. He says to Esau, sell me your birthright. And Esau says, well, fine. I'm dying. Who cares about, a, who cares about an eternal blessing when I'm, when I'm dying now? When you put it that way, it makes it a little more clear, doesn't it? Who cares about God's blessings? I, I've got other things that I've, I've got to take care of first, more importantly. 
says something about his view of God, too, of whether God would provide, whether he even had that concept in his mind. His words are very revealing. The writer of Hebrews says he acts in an unholy manner. This was an unholy action. Selling his birthright for a single meal. That's how it's, that's how it's set before us, for a single meal, for a moment. Well, what are your single meals? What are my single meals? What gracious gifts of God do we despise, do we take for granted in pursuit of fleeting things? If our attitude is that we want this and this and this, and we'll pursue whatever it takes on this horizontal plane first before anything else, Soon that develops a character. Our character becomes tied to those things, to upholding those things, taking care of those things, spending upon those things, supporting those things. They don't support us. They, They now shape us and we become the servant to those things that we had to have. And the attitude then develops character. It's been said this way, sow a thought. What are you thinking? Reap an action. Okay, if this is important to me, then I'm going to take that action. Then it says this. So an act, or so an action, reap a habit. You start becoming habitually tied to that particular thing. Then it says, so a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. What do you think about and act upon? What habits are you forming? What character is being established in your life? And what will be the destiny of a character that puts things other than God first? God says, think upon me, think upon my word, meditate upon my word, feed upon it that you might grow in holiness. Yes, body is important and I will provide food and drink for you that you might not perish. It's almost as I've never seen the righteous begging bread. Living in the covenant community doesn't save someone. Just to think of it in those terms, just being here doesn't save someone. If the covenant community is acting faithfully, yes, the, exposure, the, the attenders are exposed to truth, and that's important. The question is this, what do I do with what I hear? What do I do with what I learn in God's covenant community? Does my life demonstrate the fruit of saving faith? Now, pondering this question, let, let be very, let's be very clear here. This is not to raise doubt in your mind. Well, am I even saved? We've just been talking about salvation. It's not of works, okay? It's not of works. It's of grace. It's not a salvation question. You're saved by faith in Christ who, when his righteousness is given, imputed to you, God sees you in him as perfectly righteous. But how then does that faith demonstrate itself? Have I done enough to be saved? We know the answer to that question. Salvation is not based upon works. If it was, I, I, none of us would be saved. It's all of grace. 
But the question is, how does that faith bear fruit? This application is given to get us to think about whether we despise the gracious blessings of God. We don't want to come to a place where we think that God saves us because we're close to the covenant community or religious in our behavior on one day of the week for a certain amount of time. Esau wasn't saved because he was in the covenant community. Esau is an example of one who was in the covenant community but who cared nothing for God. To be in the covenant is a blessing and we should delight in it and we should build upon it and we should see the community growing in spiritual health and maturity as we all participate. This is our, Paul says, spiritual, our reasonable act of worship. Romans 12. It's the spiritual act of worship. That's what it looks like. The children of God treasure God's promise more than anything else. They'll part with everything to get it. If they know that the treasure is there in that field, Jesus says, they'll go sell all that they have to buy that field because that's what they have to have more than anything else. God's blessing in Christ. The coronation of King Charles is coming up this week. I don't know if you know that. Maybe you're not good British folks. I'm not either. I just happened to come across it. It's rather interesting what happens at the coronation of royalty. I don't know if you know the ceremony. I had to see, look this up to see if it was true. But at the coronation, the moderator of the Church of Scotland comes and brings a gift to the new monarch. It's been a lot of years. I wasn't there when Queen Elizabeth was coronated, by the way. I mean, I wasn't around. I wasn't even born. That's what I mean. And he says this. He presents the new monarch with a Bible, and he says this, quote, the most precious thing this world affords, the most precious thing that this world knows, God's living word. That's true. God's word and his church, the community of faith, more precious than anything else in the world. Now you'll probably all go watch, and cor- watch the coronation ceremony to see if that happens. I don't know if it will. May- tell, let me know if it happens. I probably won't be watching. But that's what has happened in the past. That is the tradition. But we want, one wonders if that is indeed understood that way by royalty today, by kings and queens, by those in power, or, dare I say, by the citizens. Is it the most precious thing in the world? God's word is the body of Christ, the most precious thing in the world. God has blessed us by his grace. He sovereignly calls and graciously extends his covenant promises to the next generation. And we must not despise his grace. We must hold on to the gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. God predestines us to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. What did Jesus do? He trusted the Father. He lived for the Father. There was nothing more precious to him than to live for the Lord. Jacob aside, 
He's not our example. Jesus, the one who said, there is nothing more important, more precious than to have the blessing of the Father. And I will do anything to the point, even to the point of, even unto death, I will give my life such that I might do the will of the Father. That's quite something. That's the Savior who lives and reigns. The Savior who calls you to come, to die to yourself, to all those things which might be first in your life, that, that bread stew, that bread. I'm dying. i got to have that more than anything else. No. More than anything else, we need the Lord. May we follow our Savior in this, knowing forgiveness of sins in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for the blessing of church, the body of Christ, to come to hear your word proclaimed. We are so blessed to have your spirit that we might understand what is said. Lord, you save us by your grace. We can't take any credit. We dare not claim any part of our salvation. You save us unto holiness, to be holy and blameless, as we heard in Ephesians 1 this morning. Lord, may we see what a value, what a treasure it is to be in Christ, and what a delight it gives us, and what a call it extends to us to live for you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not to despise those blessings, Not to put them second, but to see that what you are teaching us, to see that it would be growing in us day by day, so that more and more we might show that we recognize our life is not in food and water, but in you and in your Son, who is food and water eternal for us. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.